Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the promise and the hope of eternal life, of an endless eternity that we will spend with you one day. Lord, may the the riches that you have given to us be a reminder of your provision and your kindness, of your goodness to us. Father, may we never forget that these monetary items, these homes and these clothes and these accounts have no comparison to the riches and the the wealth that you have given us in Christ. May we never inflate and place these two at opposing areas of our mind that we we seek to hold on to our love of wealth while we chase after our love of Christ. And we recognize you are the God who's given us all things. And we recognize that we are nothing and that our life is but a vapor. And for some of us, Lord, it may even be tonight, tomorrow, this year, that you require our soul of us. Our days are numbered, never to be lengthened or shortened, and our hope is set upon Him who died and gave Himself for us. May we give out of hearts of thankfulness, knowing that our eternity is sure because it is not dependent upon anything that we have done or will do. May we desire to see your kingdom come on this earth through the proclamation of the gospel, through the care of your people, through the laying up of these offerings to go forth and help to that end. Oh, Father, we need your spirit. We need your grace to renew our hearts and our minds. Father, without you and apart from you, we have nothing and we are nothing. There will be no strides or gains made towards towards Christ and towards you today that are apart from a working and a moving of your Spirit in our heart. There will be no salvation and no no heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh, a part of the working of your, your spirit. Father, we have great confidence. Confidence that when your word is proclaimed, you are the author of it. You are the one who has inscribed it and the one who has promised to bring life to your words and power to your words by the gift of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But please, Father, use this time as we open your word to subdue and subject that flesh crucified with Christ that still lives within us and to bear much fruit and bring forth joy and newness and further repentance by the power of your Spirit through the proclamation of your word. Fill us this morning, Lord. 
turn our eyes upon Christ. And let us preach and proclaim and hear and listen to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I was reading a, a book actually yesterday or two days ago to Christiana, uh, one of the Lamplighter books written by uh, Mrs. Walton, O.F. Walton. And there was a segment that I came across that struck me that I want to read from as we begin this morning. Um, you, you've maybe all understood or all know what a, a tug of war is, right? We've got the the great Iowa-Illinois tug fest every year, and they've got people on either side and a big old rope, and they have a tug of war, and whoever pulls that handkerchief or you know marker in the middle across the line wins wins the tug of war. So here's a uh, an excerpt from a sermon that is being written about that draws upon that analogy. Today, dear friends, I speak to you of yet another tug of war. The place is the same, Brunswick Bay and our village green, but the weight to be drawn is not a boat, not a handkerchief. The weight is a human soul. It is your soul, my friend, your immortal soul. You are the one who is being drawn. And who are the pullers? Oh, how many there are. I myself have my hands on the rope. God only knows how hard I am pulling, driving with all my might, if possible, to draw you, my friend, to Christ. But there are other hands on the rope besides mine. Your conscience pulls. Your good old mother pulls. Your little child pulls. Your Christian mate pulls. Each sermon you hear, each Bible class you attend, each hymn you sing, each prayer uttered in your presence, each striving of the Spirit, each God-given yearning after better things, each storm you come through, each danger you escape, each sickness in your family, each death in your home, Each deliverance granted you gives you a pull Godward, Christward, heavenward. Yet, oh, my dear friend, you know, as clearly as you know that you are sitting there, that so far, Christ's pullers are drawing in vain. You have never yet, you know it, crossed the line which divides the saved from the unsaved. And why is this? Why, oh, why are you so hard to move? Oh, my dear friend, do you ask why? Surely you know the reason. Is it not because there are other hands on the rope, other pullers drawing in an exactly opposite direction? For Satan has many an agent, many a servant, and he sends forth a great army of soul pullers, each worldly friend, each desire of your evil nature, each temptation to sin, each longing after wealth, each sinful suggestion gives you a pull and to pull the wrong way, away from safety, away from Christ, away from God, away from heaven, away from home, and towards what? Oh, dear friend, towards what? What are the depths, the fearful depths, towards which you are being drawn? What are the depths the fearful depth toward which you are being drawn. See, every one of us 
I think can draw something from this. And as I was contemplating this thought, I'd ask the question, what are you pulling the people around you for? What is your influence, your conversation, the things you're focused on, the things your time is spent doing, the things you're about? What influence and impact is that having upon those around you? Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider that. What are you pulling toward? What are you drawing others toward? Is it a love for the things of the world? Is it away from safety and away from Christ and as close to whatever earthly enjoyment you desire to have? Children, where where are you pulling towards? What are you allowing yourself to be drawn towards too? What is it that Satan is pulling towards? What is that depth? that He desires to draw and to pull souls to. Do you have a care? Do you recognize that every pull away from Christ is only drawing you nearer and nearer to that day when that rope will finally be cut? And no longer will there be a tug heavenward. There will only be a quick surmise and collapse over that edge and over that cliff, cliff into an eternal abyss. The wrath of God of an eternal hell. And you sit here today and we come in here today and I ask you, which way are you being drawn to? I ask you, who are you and which direction are you pulling? Which direction are you pulling your children? Which direction are you allowing your soul to be pulled? Is it to Christ? Brothers and sisters, there's a day coming when to that rope will and shall be cut. And every pull towards the things of this earth and the things of this world and our sin will be done. And it is coming. But you have a responsibility that you are saved, that you have believed upon Christ to not allow that pull to draw you or to allow your influence to draw others. If you know, as I'm reading that, You know I have not crossed to believe in Christ, to know that I am saved. If you know that is you, what are the depths, the fearful depths towards which you are being drawn? I want you to think about that. Whatever the sin is that you so desperately want to hang on to in your rejection of Christ, and your turning from Christ, whatever that is, it draws you towards an end. Towards depths that are sure and certain, towards agony and misery, the likes of which you would never wish to jump into. If that is you, repent. Turn away from that pull. That pull that draws you. And turn to Christ who is the only one who can save your soul. Brothers and sisters, may we not, so help us God, be those who are pulling or influencing or drawing ourselves or our children in that direction. May we be faithful. May, may we be able to say, 
as this as this pastor says God only knows how hard I am pulling and striving with all my might if possible to draw you my friend to Christ can you say that with an honest conscience can you say that fathers mothers Christians that you would pull who are up to you as far as you are concerned Let's live our lives in sight of God. That we would have a clear conscience that as I did all, all within my strength, all within my power to pull them to Christ. We're going to read uh, Luke chapter 9. It'll be in verse 46. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Please stand when you are there. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. God's word. So we've been now in, in Luke chapter 9 for some time. We've been looking at some of the events that the apostles have been um, going through in, in Christ as they've been on their ministry. At the beginning of this chapter, uh, we had Jesus sending out these 12 apostles. Uh, they, they went out, they proclaimed message of the kingdom, of repentance, of of Christ, and then they returned. And when they returned, they were weary, they were seeking rest, they were uh, ministering to one another, and they were withdrawing uh, to a a desolate place, and that's when the crowds just overwhelmed them. And we had Jesus instruct the disciples, give them food, feed these people, right? They were weary, they were tired, and and they fed the 5,000 by using five loaves and two fish as Jesus miraculously provided for these people. And, and Peter gave the confession shortly thereafter that this Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of God. Christ foretold of His upcoming death the first time. He called for a, a denial of self, for a losing of one's life. Shortly after He was up on the mountaintop and he was transfigured and and revealed to them to James and John and Peter the full weight of his glory of who he was God incarnate after that he he came down and they they come to this failed miracle of the disciples to drive out this demon from uh, this young boy and Christ drives him out and again foretells of his 
upcoming death. And yet the disciples, they don't understand. And now they're, they're going to head to Capernaum. And we don't necessarily see that in Luke's Gospel. We see that otherwhere. Uh, that they're headed to Capernaum. And not really sure where they are at this point. If they were in Bethsaida, uh, it would be about six miles. Or if they were up near the, the Mount of Transfiguration, it could have been about 27 miles. But they were journey, journeying, probably a day's journey, either a short day or a long day, from Bethsaida to uh, to Capernaum. They were probably about to enter Peter's house. And the events that we read uh, here in chapter 9 likely took place inside of Peter's house. And so they're coming to this, this place of, of respite. Now, if you're the disciples, I think you've got to be thinking at this moment or at this point, if you have a little bit of understanding, uh, that this whole kingdom business has got to be getting closer and closer. Like, you know, we don't, some of the disciples maybe knew what happened up there on the mount, certainly James, John, and Peter, and if they're saying anything, like, hey, get ready. It's coming. You know, we're, we're getting close. And this whole, like, what he's talking about, going to Jerusalem thing, you know, they, they don't quite understand that, but, you know, it's, it's as if they can taste it. Excited that his kingdom is shortly going to be arriving on the scene. And that leads them into this argument. Who is going to be the greatest? Once this kingdom is set up and established, which one of us is going to be Christ's right-hand man? Who is going to be the greatest in that kingdom? Now I want you to think for a moment. Let's let's say uh, you were in a wealthy family. Your grandfather, he's got only four four heirs, you're one of the heirs, and he's worth a, a solid $20 million, Okay, There's only a, a few of you left, but you've had the closest relationship. And you're starting to think, you know, grandfather's getting up there, he's in his 90s. Uh, soon, you're going to have an, uh, a large inheritance. You don't really know exactly what, what's been set up, but you kind of think, you know, I like a lot, and spent a lot of time with it. I've been caring for him. And you would probably start thinking about, hey, what am I going to do with, you know, if I had a million dollars, I can't even imagine that, but what if it's five? And, and that might cause your mind to spin a little bit. Or maybe maybe you're one of ten sons, and we'll have to rewind back a, a thousand years or so, and your father happens to be the king of one of the largest kingdoms. And you're one of these ten sons, and dad's getting ready to pass, and these ten sons start to collaborate and talk amongst themselves. That might be probably the main topic that was on your thought. Well, if you think that Jesus is going to restore Israel to its glory, to, to the age of Solomon and David, if you think that He's going to deliver uh, your nation from Roman oppression and establish it as an independent world power, and you're one of these twelve disciples, you might start to think, hey, you know, which... Which one of us is going to be the greatest? You know, like, this is going to be a, a pretty big deal. And I, I mean, I, I'm not, but what if I was the one who was in charge of this kingdom? It may have sounded maybe something like this. John speaking. Nice try, Peter. Not even you could drive out that demon and that kid. Peter, hey, well, John... You know, you just wait. When we overthrow Rome, you watch and see who knows how to use a sword. 
Yeah, whatever, Peter. You know he loves me the most. James comes in. I heard that. Hold on, little brother. You think you'll be above me? That's it? I'm telling Mom. Thomas steps in. You three be quiet. It's highly doubtful that any one of you will achieve greatness. I'll believe it when I see it. Hey, okay, Thomas. We didn't even tell you what we got to see up on that mountain. Judas, brothers, please. You know the greatest will be the one with the deepest pocket. Andrew says, hey, while that may be true, Jesus just told my brother to get some money out of that fish over there. There was a coin in it. Don't you forget, Peter is going to have the keys of the kingdom. And I'm his brother. Philip chimes in, right, Andrew, how much money was in that second fish? Bartholomew from the back. Hey, guys, Peter couldn't even walk on water. What makes you think he'll be great? Now, I embellished, right? Obviously, we have no idea what their conversation was like. But they're talking in such a way that is wondering which one of us is going to be Jesus' high king, official, ruler of the army. And what's what's even more interesting, we see, and we'll see in other places in the in the gospel. Jesus wasn't a part of this discussion. I mean, you can already imagine, right? They're not going to have that kind of a discussion with Jesus right there. He's likely uh, ahead. We'll see of the pack, walking, leading the way to Capernaum. And yet, the text tells us Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart. How did Jesus know what they were talking about? He wasn't within earshot. He hadn't listened to the discussion. And yet he knew their heart. Uh, in fact, this word here for, for argument and reasoning, uh, they're actually the same word. Uh, dialogismos. It's that thinking of a man who is deliberating within himself. Right? It's, it's those thoughts that are within you that, that aren't coming outside. And when they, when they do come outside, uh, the word is used that way in, in terms of an argument or a deliberation, a dispute. This word is often translated as thought. We see Matthew fifteen nineteen For out of the heart come evil thought. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus exercise this kind of an ability. In Luke 5.22, we read, When Jesus perceived their thought, uh, He answered them, Why do you question in your heart? And in Luke 6.8, He said this, But He knew their thought. And He said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And He rose and stood there. See, the text is telling us with no uncertain terms, Jesus is God. While He emptied Himself of His glory, uh, He emptied His right to His authority as God when He became a man, He did not cease to be God. First uh, Corinthians 3.20 The Lord knows the thought of the wise that they are futile. Jesus is Lord, and he knew the discussion that they were having along the road. He didn't need to be informed of it. He is God in the flesh and had perfect understanding, perfect knowledge of all that they were discussing. Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. 
From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. We've talked about this some in the past, and I think it bears repeating here again. God knows all. He knows what you think. He knows what is in your heart. He knows all your failures. He knows all of your reasonings. You have no secrets with God. There's nothing you've ever done, nothing you've ever thought, nor will do, that God will be surprised to find out. Uh, There's no thinking you could ever have that will kind of miss His gaze. Or, or just not quite settle in the, the book of uh, life that you're going to have to give an account for. No, no, God sees you and He sees your thought life. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you will be thinking tomorrow and the day after that. And this is both a, a great fear, but also a great comfort. I'm thinking about, you know, Jesus having this knowledge and then how he's going to respond here. I mean, don't you think he would he would just sort of turn around on the road and rebuke them sharply? Don't you think maybe that's how he would handle that? If you knew everything that your child was thinking, wouldn't it change the way that you interact with them a little bit? Stop it! Stop it! Uh, no, no! We don't go there. But that's not the way that God interacts with us. And I I find that, frankly, to be such a great comfort, especially resting in the hope of the gospel, that that I don't have to fear my thoughts, even when my thoughts lead me astray, that I can cast those aside, that I don't have to go to a place of wondering and questioning and abandoning my salvation because I've had such an evil thought pass through my mind. No, I can cast it out and remember that it's Christ. Remember that it's not me. And remember that God even saw that and yet paid for it by my Savior. If your hope is in Christ, this is a great comfort and can actually help you in your temptations and your battles with your thoughts in your mind. Allow you to take them captive. To see that Christ knows them. And that He paid for them. For those of you who do not have your hope in Christ, this should be quite a terrible thought for you to contemplate. If you truly do not have your hope in what Jesus has done on the cross, be assured that everything that you've ever thought or ever will be thinking, God knows and He will call you to account for it. Job understood this. Job said, Does not God see my ways and number all my steps? For His eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all His steps. He knows what you were thinking last night when you went to bed. He knows what you dreamed. He knows what you're thinking in this moment. God's eyes are not blind. He sees everything at all times, always. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. You have done foolishly in this. From now on you will have wars. 2 Corinthians 
You cannot hide anything from God. Understand this. You cannot hide anything. Anything. You might think, nobody. Wrong. God does. He saw it. Even though you didn't do it, He saw you think it. He knows what you think. One day, one day, God is going to reveal all of it. All of it. you imagine if we put that projector up, right? We've used this analogy before. And I ran that tape back. Every thought you've ever had. Everything you've ever done that nobody saw. And God made it visible for all creation to see. And why would he do why would he do that? Because he's going to judge the living and the dead. And you're going to be exposed for all to see how heinous and vile and wicked and wretched you truly are. And if you don't know it now, understand me, you and the entire world is going to know it then. If you don't know now that you are heinous and vile and wicked, you and every single person on planet Earth from all time will know how wicked and heinous and vile you are if you don't understand that today. You must. You have nowhere else to go than Christ. Nowhere else to run. Nowhere else to hide. Nothing can save you under the sun but Jesus Christ. You must turn to Him that your sins will be remembered no more. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine that? For whatever whatever ounce of uncomfort you had thinking about this, whatever display of, of your life causes you to tremble and shudder, it's not coming, beloved, that God will display your heinousness and wickedness before the entire world. No, no, no. He will display the righteousness of Christ enrobed upon you. It, he says, your sins I will remember no more. The wonderful thought. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, what are you waiting for? Why do you sit here in, in fearful trepidation of that day when you can today turn to Christ and put your trust in Him and repent of your sins and acknowledge and confess with your mouth that I am heinous and vile and wicked and Christ is excellent and lovely and He died that sinners could live and I will trust in Him. Why not? Why do you want to go toward those depths? Turn to Him. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You will have to give account for your thoughts, for your secret deeds. You will be exposed and laid bare with all your failures and imperfections brought into the light. Everything done in darkness will be made visible. All payment required for those sins 
what will the payment for your sin be? Will it be your soul for all eternity under God's wrath and hell? If you do not repent and put your faith in Christ, that is what it will be. The payment for your sins will be your soul for all eternity in hell. You need a payment for sin. And Christ is that payment. He is that sacrifice to cover sin. Whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, moving on. Jesus teaches them how to be great. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now I find this to be a bit of a puzzling statement. Okay, Especially when we just look at what's going on here in Luke's Gospel. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Okay, this child. Uh, Where's this child? Because according to this verse, we've got to find this child and we've got to receive him. Right? I hope he's still alive. And then what does it mean to receive him? Like like put him in my lap like Jesus did? Or uh, what does it mean to receive the child in my name? And, and how is that receiving Christ? Uh, how is that receiving God? How, and how does this connect to what he says after this? That the least among you all is the one who is great. Uh, how does that go together? Now, now, I think if we actually start here and work our way backwards, this will start to maybe connect a little bit more. So this, this last statement, he says, For... He who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the the word for is there because it's drawing us back to what he just said. So this should somehow help us explain and understand what this whole receiving this child piece is. This statement is a a summarizing of why the the previous thing that we were just taught, uh, it answers the, the query, the question of which one of us will be the greatest. For because this explains what was previously stated. And this is actually the main point. Okay? So to understand, this is actually the main point of what Jesus is teaching them. That he who is least among you all is the one who is great. That that's what he's trying to help them understand. Greatness is not about placing yourself above others. In God's kingdom, it's the opposite. Right? And that's what he's driving them towards. Now, the way we understand and explain this statement, it has to fit that context. Okay, It has to make sense with what's going on right here. It must fit Jesus' further explanation uh, that the least is the greatest. It must fit with the illustration that he's giving of, of calling this child in. And it must fit with the question that then comes from John afterward. This this has to all logically connect. Okay, so how is it? Now, if if that if all that's the case, then let me just posit some bad interpretations of this and how you can quickly and easily see that that's obviously not what's being taught or instructed here. 
Uh, do you think here that Jesus is trying to tell us that all babies go to heaven? No, no, that doesn't fit with what is being taught here. Or that we should baptize children. No, that doesn't fit with what is being taught here. Or that we should all impersonate four-year-olds in our speech, in our actions. Believe it or not, some people we would assert as gospel preaching, teaching, brothers and sisters, all end up with one of those three conclusions out of this verse. Okay? So, so it matters that we understand how we interpret and, and land on what does this actually mean. And in order to do that, we're going to widen our scope. Alright? We're going to widen our scope and we're going to read what God has written about this exact topic in the other Gospels where, where we see in Matthew and in Mark. So I'm going to read those. This is Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew's account of this happening. Now Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, Why were you dis- What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So a few observations here that I'm I'm going to try to compare these three texts in a way that that keep us together and and you stay with me. Who started this discussion? Did Jesus ask first what they were talking about or was it the apostles who came and said, hey, which one's the greatest? We don't necessarily know. Which question came first? I mean, it, it could have gone both ways. It could have been the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, uh, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus responds and says, Oh, what were you talking about on the way? Now we do know that when he asked them that question, what do the disciples do? They get embarrassed. They don't want to tell Jesus what they were just talking about. Right? And, and maybe it was that Jesus just came up to them and said, so tell me what you were talking about on the way. And everybody looks around and, you know, somebody says, uh, uh, which which person is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, and, and tries to show a little, you know, a little piety, a little, you know, we were just contemplating some good theological uh, material here, right? 
that's not what was going on. So we don't necessarily know how that happens, but we do know that the disciples were ashamed. That they didn't want to tell Christ what they were talking about. And so, Jesus says, we see in Mark, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's the lead. Right? What we see Luke conclude with, Mark tells us that's what he began to teach them on. And in order to illustrate this, what did he then do? He called a child. He called a child as, as a picture, a, a demonstration. And we're, we're going to get into that. But he answers the question, who will be the greatest? If any is to be first, he must be the last and servant of all. Now, when he, when he brings this child in, you know, we don't necessarily know how old this child was. Um, old enough to sit on Jesus' lap. Old enough to be held in his arms. Uh, whether he could walk or not walk, we don't necessarily know. The Word would have us maybe understand this is somewhere between infant and maybe three, four years old at the oldest. Right? This is, this is the child uh, that is being brought here. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus teaches about an entrance to the kingdom. Ma- Matthew tells us that Jesus actually says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now, now we got to really, whoa, wake up here. Jesus is teaching not about who's the greatest. He's actually teaching us about the way in to heaven. I mean, this is about heaven and hell. This is about life and death. This is about, am I a Christian or am I not? This is a very weighty matter that Christ is is expositing on. He then tells us you are to humble yourself like a child if you want to be great. He explains, he gives some context what it means to be a servant of all and to be least of all. And then we get this statement that we read in Luke. If you receive one such child as this, who is in my name, you receive me. And this is where all three unite and have this statement recorded. If you receive a child such as this, if you receive a child in my name, you receive me. And you also receive him who sent me. And who is that? God, the Father. So how you treat those in Christ and those dear children of the Father will determine your greatness in the kingdom. That's what what is being taught here. If you cause them to sin, if you you cause them to, to be drawn away from Christ, you are showing yourself illegitimate and not sons. And it would be better for you, Matthew says what? To have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the sea. But he who in humility serves and cares for the least of them, it is the same as as serving the Lord Jesus. The same as serving God the Father. So here we get a full context. We get a full picture. We don't have to guess, well, what does this mean? No, no we, we see clearly uh, what it means, what Jesus is, is teaching us. So let's 
let's come back to a few of these. So he illustrates this by taking a child. Uh, he comes and he calls a child to himself. He, he picks up the child, places him in his lap. The disciples are around him. The child is in the midst of them. Somewhere between a newborn, an infant, a toddler. And he says, you must become as this child if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do you think, in what way are we to be like that child? Right? So there's a number of things that this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that children are without sin. That's not, that's not what he's teaching here. So what, what is it? Like, in what way are we to be like an infant or a toddler? Should we all be sucking on our thumbs? Should we all be taking seven naps a day? Should we all, you know, well, what is it that we are to emulate? Uh, and frankly, the, the answer to this, to this question is, I mean, you might disagree with me here, but it's kind of hard. If, if there was anything that I had to posit on more, it would have been this question. Now, the, the overarching element is certainly what he's teaching them is humility. Is a, a lowliness of mind. Uh, a lack of aspiring to greatness. Right? Children have an innocence in their sin. Right? They don't come out of the womb thinking about uh, mass genocide and how to accomplish it. Okay? They learn that as they grow up. That evil grows and brings forth fruit, right? The, the sin is there, but there is an innocence to that evil that they learn as they grow, right? And, and we're actually called to model that sort of innocence towards evil that a child uh, is given. We're, we're not called to emulate the foolishness or the the lack of understanding that a child has. So some of these ways, some of these examples, I think that are helpful um, in answering the question, how am I supposed to be like a child? How am I supposed to model this little baby that I'm holding in my arm? Well, one way, and I think the most important way, I think the way that Jesus drives us to in Matthew, and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven is fully trusting the Father. Fully trusting in God. I, I believe that's clearly what he's referring to. An infant, a child, they look to no one and nothing else but mom, but dad, for their very life. Uh, I, I mean, I was thinking about it, and I was going to grab Benny. He's not in here, right? But I took Baniah... And, and I said, you need to be like this child, right? You, you need to be uh, humble as, as he is humble. And if I took Benaiah and I set him out there in the field and I just left him for a month, what would happen to him? You're supposed to say you kill a lion, but that's, that's not where we're going yet. Okay, he would die. He would perish, Right? He, his life would cease to exist. He cannot support himself. He's a baby. That's obvious, isn't it? For everybody to understand? Right? Now, if I take and I won't name names, some of you, and I set you out there and left you for a month, you might die too, but we're not going to go there. So, 
this child is fully dependent upon their father or their mother. I want you to think of Jesus Christ's example in this. He is not teaching anything different than what He modeled. He is not teaching anything different when He takes that child, sets it on His lap, and said, you must be like this child, than what Jesus Christ actually modeled. In trusting His Father and being completely dependent upon Him and emptying Himself of all power as the Creator of the universe and becoming a seed, an embryo, an egg, a zygote, a baby inside of a mother's womb and growing in the same way that you and I grew as a man, as a babe, clothed in a manger. He modeled it. He trusted himself to his Father and became completely and utterly dependent upon him as he's always been. And, and we see that in Christ. He became a human child. He, he, he did all of this because he was submissive to his Father and because he knew the plan to save his people that he loved. A toddler trusts their parents because that's where their source of life is. They look to them for everything. They cry to them for everything. Everything that they have, they have to receive. And in this way, this is the only way that you come to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have nothing to offer God. Absolutely nothing. You are entirely dependent upon Him and His grace to receive you into the kingdom of heaven. You can't do a thing. No work. No obedience. Right? Do we, do we have obedience training with our three-week-olds? They can't. They can only lay there. If you think that you have done anything to gain yourself access, into God's kingdom, Jesus says, I tell you, you're wrong. In fact, you're outside of it if you don't understand that the only entrance is to become like this child, completely dependent upon His Father, upon your Savior for your salvation. A child cannot climb into the kingdom. They must be lifted up. You cannot climb into the kingdom. You must be lifted up. Salvation is by grace through faith. And it is not by faith that you earn grace. You understand that? You do not earn God's grace by believing the gospel. It is the grace of God that has you believe the gospel. Those two do not get flipped. It's God's grace that had you believe and trust in Christ. Nothing you've done. Nothing you've earned. And Christ did it all for you. Your salvation is dependent on Him. And by His grace, He had you believe it. If you have indeed believed it. Trust in Him. We even see this, uh, you know, and, and this is as close as I can tie what we're seeing here. We even see this in our confession when it talks about elect infants dying in infancy. They are not beyond the saving grace of God. They are not. 
beyond the saving grace of God. God can, He is able to save to the uttermost. He can give grace and faith to one who's not able to exercise it. He can save them through Christ. You know, some take this then and they argue the Scripture to say that that um, every infant that dies in infancy is saved. It may very well be. The fact is, I, I don't believe you can approach Scripture and demand that it says, so thus saith the Lord. But God would indeed be able to do such a thing. There is no limit upon His ability to stay. And we see that even inside of this doctrine of infants who would die in infancy. They are not beyond the reach of God. (coughs) Praise be to God that God may only save some infants who die in infancy. And praise be to God that He may save many and all who die in infancy. We can trust Him in this. He has every right to do with His creation as pleases and glorifies Him. And we can worship Him. We don't have to condition our ability to praise Him based on our own desire. And that's something we have to come to learn, right? Something we will have to learn as parents. That we will praise God regardless of where our children may go or how they may live. God will be right to judge them and oh, we pray that God would do right and save them. A third way, and, and this is somewhat related, but do you think of yourself as helplessly dependent? I, I don't think we think of ourselves this way, adults. We don't think of ourselves as helplessly dependent. In fact, the society that we live in frames us to be completely independent and having no need for anyone or anything else. Right? Independency is, is the greatest uh, accomplishment that someone can arrive at. That is not the way into the kingdom of heaven, and that is not the way up. You are helplessly dependent upon God, and then even after salvation, you are helplessly dependent upon His Holy Spirit. There is a, a complete humility and meekness that we understand by this illustration of looking at a child. Uh, A little baby, they... A little toddler, they are eager to come to mom and dad. Right? I mean, sometimes it's like, can they just stop? Uh, can I go to the bathroom here? Right? No, they're eager to come and they're eager to cry out. This should be the relationship that we have with God. Shame on us that we don't act this way. That we don't wear out His ear, so to speak, in our cries to Him. Matthew Poole here, commenting on this, this illustration. And I quote, Then he teacheth them humility by the type of a little child, which he setteth in the midst of them, telling them they must be like that little child. Not in all things, but in the want of ambition, in a carelessness as to the great things of this life. And whosoever entertained or showed kindness to such a one, Christ would take it as done to himself. And what kindness was showed him reached not to him only, but to his Father who sent him. So, I think we should ask ourselves here, 
Are you childlike in your faith? To ask that question is to ask, are you a believer? (laughs) Do you have childlike faith? Without that, you are not inside the kingdom of heaven, but outside of it. This demands examining, thinking about. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Moving on here. Least equals great in the kingdom. We should not aspire to greatness. Jesus is teaching His disciples. Stop doing what you're doing. You're arguing about who's the greatest. You need to stop it. Don't aspire to greatness. Aspire to sacrificial service. Aspire to be the least. Don't chase after positions of honor, but seek to care for the lowliest of low. Look at this child that I'm setting here among you. Is there any of you that that can imagine or fathom a desire to be as low as this in my kingdom? He's he's teaching them humility. And we're going to go on, and and this is going to come up a number of times. You jump all the way to Luke chapter 22, verse 24. We're, we're at the Passover. Like we've made it to the end here. And what are the disciples doing? A dispute also arose. Luke 22, 24. Among them. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? It, it came up again. They just didn't get it. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Uh, John Calvin and William Pringle here. That man is truly humble, who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren, or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. Humility does not seek our own honor. Humility thinks of ourselves less than others and considers others more significant than ourselves. Humility desires God's glory and the glory of Jesus Christ above all things. And this, this is the one who will be called great. Those who abase themselves, who bring themselves low, who serve others, who take the mind of Christ and live out in their day to day what He modeled in example. Do you ever think that you are somehow higher or above the sinner who deserves hell? Don't have that mind come into you that that you think that you're somehow more earned this salvation you, you profess. That apart from the grace of God and the work of the Spirit of God that you are anything but a sinner that deserves hell. And live with that humility. 
I think this is a, a remarkable passage in 2 Corinthians 6.3 where Paul models this for us. He says, We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants, slaves of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This should be our mind. This should be the way that we live. That we would submit and subject ourselves to the greatest of sufferings for the sake of the glory of Christ. This is Christ's example for us, is it not? To even die upon a cross? To even become a man? To even live and be obedient to the own law that He created for our behalf? For our salvation? And who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Is it not Christ? Is He not the pinnacle? Is He not the focus? And look at what He has done for us. Now go and do likewise. Now, we'll come here in final and closing to consider what does it mean then to receive the children? Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. I think it's very simple. I think if we actually understand what he just taught us, that we must become as children in order to enter the kingdom. What does it mean then to be a child in my name? That's a believer. <laughs> That's all that is. Whoever receives a child in my name, whoever receives a Christian, one who is trusting in me for salvation, receives me. It's as simple as that. That's really what He's showing them here. You want to be great in My kingdom, Jesus says? Feed My sheep. Right? What does He tell Peter? Feed My sheep. Have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. For the sake of the bride of Christ, lay down your life. How do you interact with the children of God? I think if there's any practical application for us to examine today, it is this. How do you view the children of God? The people of God? What is your attitude towards them? Are you like the disciples? Which one of us is greater? Better than you? A little bit better than you too? Right? Is that is that the heart that we have? Or do we understand that we are the least? That out of everyone in here, I deserve to be here the least. Woe to us if we think we deserve to be here. That's what Christ is, is teaching them. How do you interact? What is your attitude towards the children of God and the people of God? You have a what have they done for me lately? Kind of a heart? Or, look how foolish. Brothers and sisters can be. 
until they show desire to reach out to me, to, to connect with me, I'm not going to show desire for them. Until they pay me a, a thankful gratitude for the service that I've given, I'm not going to reach out to them again. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We're going to turn to a couple places. I'll read from 1 John, and then we're going to turn to Matthew. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3, verse 10. A love for the brethren is a mark of a true believer. Turn to Matthew 25. I want to read this together. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is referring to Christ's return. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, when He will sit on His glorious throne, before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. He'll place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. The King will say to those on His right, Come you, blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, You did it to me. Think this matters? Well, let's keep reading. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, and this is the most terrifying word of this passage, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. That's not a mistake there. That's not a typo. Those on his left called him Lord. And Christ condemns them to an eternity in hell because they did not love His children. And they did not care for the least among them. Test yourself today and examine yourself today. Test your view of God's children. For who you receive for the sake of of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for no other reason than that they profess and believe in the Christ who you believe in? Do you have that kind of a lowliness of mind? That kind of humility? Do you desire to show your love for Christ here? 
and to your right and to your left to the brother or the sister who sits beside you? Do you realize and understand that what He is teaching them is that what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven is to consider yourself the least and to receive those around you who are weak and who need your help? Is this the mind that you have? And then it just makes sense, doesn't it, that John would answer and ask this question and say, what about that guy that we saw that was teaching in your name? He was trying to cast out that demon and and we told him he should stop. Was that right? Jesus says no. No, if he's not against us, he's for us. And this is where we need to we need to be warned and, and we need to understand <clears throat> this question that John asked asked Christ, it flows naturally out of what he's teaching them. That John recognizes error here. He and he asks Christ, and Christ says, Yes, you're wrong. Do that. And the question wasn't about, do we baptize our babies? It wasn't about, you know, that's not the question. This is about how we interact with those professing the name of Christ. That may not be right among us. That may not be walking lockstep with us. They saw a man doing the works of God in the name of Christ, and John's wondering, you're telling me to receive those followers who are in your name? Don't hinder the one in gospel ministry who isn't showing you direct support if he's preaching and teaching the same Christ that you believe in. J.C. Ryle states here, this is speaking to those who labor to pull down the kingdom of Satan by the use of gospel weapons. Let us beware how we ever forbid such persons or hinder them in their work. Let us beware. May we not be so factious and divisive and opposed to others that we would tell them to stop preaching the same gospel we preach because they don't think like we do on everything. Paul's counsel. Some indeed preach Christ, Philippians 1, from envy and rivalry. But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former claim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Don't be disturbed by those who may not willingly follow with us. If they are preaching Christ truly, then praise the Lord that He can use even someone who may not agree completely in ecclesiology or maybe even doctrinally. Don't tell them to stop. When should we tell them to stop? When they aren't preaching Christ truly. (laughs) If someone's misrepresenting Christ, preaching a false gospel, then they ought to be rebuked and avoided. Doctrine is important, but not all doctrine is important as other doctrine. That which condemns a soul to an eternity in hell is above that which would 
we may even disagree on as brethren in this local assembly. Have the same humility and the spirit of lowliness that would not need to condemn anyone or everyone who does not see the same theological world, the same church world, the same big world picture, the way we do or the way you do. If you, if they are preaching Christ truly, they are not against us, even though they may not be right here with us and among us. And woe, woe to those who would name the name of Christ and stand against those preaching Christ. Luke 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Brothers and sisters, greatness in the kingdom of God is not the focus of a true follower of Christ. True humility comes from knowing that you deserve hell and Christ saved you by His grace. Your entrance to God's kingdom must be marked by a childlike faith. And your growth in that kingdom must be marked by a childlike love and service to the least of God's children. Test yourself this morning. You demonstrate your love for Christ by your attitude, your reception of, and your service to those who are trusting in Christ around you. What does your attitude towards God's people tell you about your attitude towards Christ? This will show you if you view yourself above Christ or in true humility. What does your reception of the brethren sitting next to you show you about your heart towards Christ. This will show you if you love yourself or if you truly love Jesus. What does your service to the Christians in your life show you about your maturity in Christ? It will show you if you're truly loving and serving self or if your life is about service to Christ. It's a great way to examine it and exactly what Jesus would have us to consider today. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would examine our hearts, test our thoughts. Oh Lord, pull us Christ's word. Pull us heavenward. Let us care for the least of these among your church, among your brethren, for the glory and the sake of your gospel. Amen.